0: Every continent, North America, South America, Europe, Australia, Asia, except for sub-Saharan Africa, now has below-replacement fertility. That is, they're having too few babies to replace
1: the current population. Welcome to Straight Talk on Life Issues. I'm Victor Nieves, joined again, as always, by Brad Mattis, president of Life Issues Institute. Today we have a topic that's near and dear to my heart. It's often said by pro-abortion advocates that our planet is facing this existential crisis of overpopulation. They use it as a justification for abortion. They say we have to allow abortion in order to prevent this existential crisis. That is a complete lie.
2: Yes, and we've got the proof to show the world that it is a complete lie. Victor, under his direction, has built a map. It's the only one in existence. It shows the countries of where their population and fertility rates actually are and what countries are doing to try to improve them. So stick around. This is going to be interesting and uh, revealing at the same time.
1: That's right. And we'll have a very good conversation. We're joined by one of the world's foremost experts on this topic, Stephen Mosher. He's the president of Population Research Institute, and he's an internationally recognized authority on China as well as population issues. He's an acclaimed author and speaker. He's the author or editor of 10 books on China and East Asia, as well as hundreds of scholarly articles, editorials, and opinion pieces. He's frequently invited to address the intelligence community on national security matters, as well as to testify before Congress on topics like China, world demographics, and human rights. His articles have appeared in the Wall Street Journal, the Washington Post, the National Review, and many more publications, and he's made TV appearances on Fox news good morning america 60 minutes the today show and many more
2: first of all i want to thank you both steve and victor one of our own joining us as a guest in today's program
1: thank you thank you
2: well steve you were back in the early 80s the canary in the mine shaft so to speak the first voice speaking out about the travesties in China and your books. And you paid a very dear price for speaking the truth to power, didn't you?
0: (laughs) Well, I was actually in China in March of 1979. I was there just a few weeks after President Jimmy Carter had normalized relations with the People's Republic of China. And I was there with permission of the then leader, Deng Xiaoping. That meant all doors were open to me. That meant that I was there when the one-child policy was instituted. I was there when women were arrested for the crime of being pregnant without permission under the one-child policy. I was there when they were arrested and taken to confinement centers where they were told they would not be released until they had consented, (laughs) consented in quotes, to an abortion. I went with them as they were taken to the local medical clinic where they were aborted in assembly line fashion. Many of them were seven, eight, nine months pregnant. It was a life-changing experience for me because i have been at Stanford University. i have been teaching at the University of California at Berkeley. I'd never really thought about the issue of abortion, Brad. It just a very convenient position for a young man to take, right? It's a woman's problem. And there I was confronted with the execution, and there's really no other word for it, uh, the execution of babies who were nearly full term. I mean, these, these women were seven, eight, nine months pregnant. They were being aborted by cesarean section. They were opening up these women like tin cans, taking out their babies, giving them lethal injections and uh, executing them. It was at that moment that I realized what an abortion was. It was the taking of the life of a tiny son of Adam, a tiny daughter of Eve. And it was also a time when I realized that God must exist because if such a horrible evil could be allowed to take place. Either God exists, either there's a source of goodness and light and truth, or the universe is mad. (laughs) <laughs> and I didn't want them in an insane asylum. So I began to seek the good, and I found God. So you ask about the price I paid for speaking out about those atrocities, about the, well, over the last few decades, the, t- the hundreds of millions of women who've been forcibly aborted in China. I actually benefited uh, from speaking out, because the truth always brings you closer to God. And the more you speak the truth, I think the closer you get to the source of all truth in life, which is uh, our Heavenly Father. And yeah, I was uh, fired from Stanford, but uh, what does it matter uh, if one gets tenure at Stanford University if you lose your immortal soul? You know, I thought God, I I entered the Catholic Church on a beautiful Easter morning in 1991, and uh, so I got the better end of the bargain. What does it profit a man to gain tenure at Stanford and lose his immortal soul? So I'm quite happy with the path that uh, I believe that God has chosen for me in this life.
2: Briefly, tell us what you do now, Steve.
0: Well, I run the Population Research Institute, which was originally founded by the great pro-lifer, Father Paul Marx, Benedictine Monk, who, um, as he said, he joined the monastery to see the world. He traveled to over 100 countries promoting the pro-life message. I joined his work in the mid-1980s when I began speaking at his conferences and then formally uh, in 1995 when I came to uh, direct all the international projects at Human Life International and take over uh, Population Research Institute, and that's what I've been doing since then, uh, making the case for people, arguing that babies are blessings and not burdens, arguing that one of the most fulfilling things, if not the most fulfilling thing in life, is to bear and raise children, little images of God, what could be more, more important. I make the case that uh, people are uh, you know, economic assets and not liabilities. And I make the case for that reason that population control programs are terribly misguided because they eliminate the ultimate resource, the one resource you cannot do without, that is human beings. Uh, China, of course, is the textbook case of what happens when you eliminate the ultimate resource, uh, the one resource you cannot do without. Because now, after uh, nearly 40 years of a one-child policy, uh, what do we see in China? We see a declining population. We see an imploding economy. We see the Chinese Communist Party, after desperately rounding up and killing as many unborn children as they could for decades, now is desperately telling young women they should get married and have at least three children. Well, guess what? Uh, They're not interested. They're the product of 40 years of anti-people, anti-natal propaganda. So uh, we can talk about how Japan and Korea and Europe and most countries in the world have now below replacement birth rates. And that does not bode well for the future of these countries.
2: Why do you think the myth of overpopulation started?
0: I think the myth of overpopulation started among the the group of people that we now call the globalists, the elites, uh, because the elites, you know, those people who are in possession of more material wealth than most of the rest of us, have always thought of the rest of us as kind of superfluous. We're the serfs, we're the majority, we're the masses, we're the unwashed masses, and they really have disdain for humanity in their numbers. It's amazing to me, you know, and having done research on people like uh, Ted Turner and Warren Buffett and Bill Gates, that these men who are so brilliant in certain ways, in high tech matters with Bill Gates, in investment with Warren Buffett, whom I've met and talked, I've met and talked to both of them. These people are so brilliant in their field and yet so misguided, so anti-human, so so misanthropic towards their fellow human beings, that they're obviously warped human beings. Warren Buffett, for example, going back to the 1990s, was one of the early funders of population control programs. He has been from the beginning. He funded uh, a chemical called hydroxychloroquine, which is injected into the wombs of women to burn their fallopian tubes shut. Hasn't been approved for use in the United States, but it's been, been used in Vietnam and other developing countries. Tremendously painful, done without informed consent, but there you have it. He funded the development of the abortion pill. He funded international projects, uh, assistance services, IPASS, which develops and developed and promotes a little handheld suction abortion machine, which is used all around the world to abort babies at 10 weeks, at 15 weeks, 16 weeks. And he spends his money specifically designated to do abortions. Uh, he doesn't give money to a clinic to do Provide other health care. He specifically designates money for abortions. Why is he so enthralled to the myth of overpopulation? It doesn't make sense to me because he's got investments in places like Dairy Queen and Coca Cola. And why is he eliminating future customers of his products? But there you have it. You know, after World War II, what happened was the great advances in medical science reached the developing world, largely through the efforts of the United States and other developed countries. We went and we opened up clinics uh, in Africa, Asia and Latin America, and we helped to bring the mortality rate down. Now, what normally happens when the mortality rate comes down is that the birth rate follows in a generation. In other words. People in Latin America, once they realized that all their children were now going to survive to adulthood and they wouldn't lose half their children to typhus, typhoid, dysentery, all the other diseases that had uh, caused the infant and child mortality rate to run at about 50%. Once they realized that all their children were going to survive to adulthood, they realized they didn't have to have six or seven in order to have two or three survive to adulthood. And so what they did was they naturally reduced the number of children they were bearing. It's called the demographic transition. It's happened everywhere in the world where countries are modernized, industrialized, and urbanized. It happened in Europe. It happened in North America. It's happened in uh, Asia now, East Asia. It's happened in South America. That's how the whole thing works. But back to my point, in the 1950s, these people mostly in the talking class they were professors at stanford university and harvard i saw the mortality rate going down but they didn't see the birth rate going down immediately and so they thought we're going to have to force the birth rate down otherwise the population of the world is going to explode well that was short-sighted because if they would simply waited the population numbers would have dropped naturally and that's what we see happening today all over the world you know every continent North America, South America, Europe, Australia, uh, every continent, uh, Asia, except for sub-Saharan Africa, uh, now has below replacement fertility. That is, they're having too few babies to replace the current population. What's going on in Africa? Well, what's going on in Africa is we still have all those tropical diseases we're talking about. We have endemic malaria, we have typhus and typhoid and people dying from dysentery from drinking dirty water. And I told Bill Gates 20 years ago (laughs) that if you simply spent your money not on population control but on reducing the infant and child mortality rate in Africa, you're worried about population growth, wait a few years and the population numbers, the birth rate would naturally come down.
2: What was his response to your suggestion?
0: Well, he claimed that he was only supporting population control programs in countries where the population was increasing at at like more than 3% a year. And I said, aside from some small islands in the South Pacific, there are no countries in the world today where the population, the total population is increasing at 3% a year. That's a really remarkable rate of population growth. That implies that everybody gets married young and has a large family. You simply don't find countries like that. You didn't find 20 years ago, you find even fewer now. So, um, you know, these people are living in the past. They're living in 1960 when Paul Ehrlich, my former colleague at Stanford, wrote the population bomb, okay? And he said in the population bomb, and think about the bomb image, right? It was a bomb. It was going off. It was going to destroy everything. He wrote in the population bomb, quote, the battle to feed humanity is over. Hundreds of millions of people will starve to death in the 1970s. Well, well, <laughs> uh, I lived through the 1970s. You, you may have lived through part of the 1970s, although you're younger than I am. And hundreds of millions of people didn't starve to death in the 1970s. Instead, we had the Green Revolution. We revolutionized the production of grains, rice and other grains. We increased food production. By tremendous amounts of money, thanks to Norman Borlaug, the agronomist uh, who received the uh, Nobel Prize in science at that time for developing uh, plant, rice, seedlings that produced twice as much grain as previously. India went from being a net importer of grain to being an exporter of grain. So what did Paul Ehrlich do? Well, he wrote another book called The Population Explosion. Just as bad, right? You've got a bomb, now you've got the explosion. He predicted that hundreds of millions of people were gonna to starve to death in the 80s and 90s. It didn't happen. But what did happen in the 1960s was the United States and the early 1970s is the United States went into population control in a big, big way. And I mean, they spent a lot of money and a lot of political capital doing several different things. First thing they did in 1968 was they set up the United Nations Population Fund. And they spent big money setting up the United Nations Population Fund because they had realized that having the U.S. directly go to countries like India and saying, you're having too many children, we're going to help you reduce the birth rate, really didn't make us look very good in the eyes of the world, right? Uh, Imagine going to your neighbor and saying, you're having too many children, Uh, I'm going to pay you to stop having children. Well, that's what the United States was saying to countries like South Vietnam, like Korea, like Taiwan, and like India. So we decided to set up a front group through the United Nations to do the same thing, but it would be in the name of the international community and we could keep it at arm's length from ourselves. So we did that and we put Robert McNamara, former Secretary of Defense, in charge and he went out around the world, began promoting this thing. Now, the next thing that we did, and this was Henry Kissinger in the early 70s, is we declared that population control was a weapon that was going to help us win the Cold War that population growth contributed to societal instability and contributed to communist revolutions. So if we could get the birth rate down, we could stop communism from spreading. And so population control got even more funding because it became a weapon uh, in the Cold War. Uh, then the feminist movement came along, uh, rejecting the traditional notion of woman and childbearing and marriage and family altogether. That for added further emphasis to it. So these various ideological movements, anti-communism, uh, the idea that the world was population was exploding, uh, the ideas of radical feminism to reject marriage and family, the idea of radical environmentalists, that, uh, that the world had been perfect uh, before the coming of humanity, and when Adam and Eve you know, arrived on the scene, we spoiled it for all the rest of the plants and animals. Their idea of paradise is the Garden of Eden before the creation of Adam and Eve. So all of these things come together, these different strands, the environmentalists, the radical feminists, the radical population controllers to drive this movement forward. And even today, it receives billions and billions of dollars in public and private funding. It has tens and tens of thousands of employees. And quite frankly, Brad, as you know, uh, movements with billions of dollars at their disposal and, and that employ a couple hundred thousand people do not go quietly to their graves. Even when they're no longer needed, they find a way to continue to justify their existence, their fundraising, and so forth.
2: Yes, even in the face of all this evidence that we're suffering from an underpopulation, they continue. Do you think, Steve, that at the heart of this is a eugenics movement, that we don't want the wrong people uh,
0: reproducing? I think that's been true from the beginning. I think that there certainly uh, uh, there's uh, an element of tacit racism here in the overweening focus now of population control on where on sub-Saharan Africa, for example. And if you look at the examples of population controlled programs in different countries, and look, we at Population Research Institute have documented uh, abuses, in population control programs in about 45 countries. We're talking forced abortion, forced sterilization, forced contraception, all the rest, the whole gamut of abuses. When you look at these programs, it's always the ethnic majority targeting the ethnic minority. It's always the religious majority targeting the religious minority. It's always the racial majority targeting the racial minority. So when these programs are implemented, even though the sponsors of these programs, USAID, of course, would say, oh, we're, we're not involved in targeting a specific race. There's nothing, we have nothing to do with eugenics. That's a, an idea whose time has passed. In fact, on the ground, that's the way these programs work out. And in many cases, it's the upper class, the wealthy targeting the poor. And that's what you see with uh, Warren Buffett. That's what you see with Bill Gates. These people seem to believe that, you know, a life lived with uh, an annual income of less than a million dollars a year is simply not worth living. And we're going to end it for you. (laughs) Well,
2: what kind of economic hardships is the world going to face if this depopulation continues?
0: Well, the economic hardship is here. Japan, since the early 90s, has been in a demographically induced recession, Japan legalized abortion early in the 1950s at the behest of uh, MacArthur, who was uh, in charge of Japan in the late 1940s after World War II. And the birth rate in Japan in 1968 dropped below replacement, that is, below 2.1 children. And it's been falling. And it's now at 1.2, 1.3. Despite the efforts of the Japanese government to bolster the birth rate, to provide benefits, to make life easier for working women, for example, the birth rate has stagnated. And right now the population of Japan ha- well they've been losing people now for uh, almost 20 years. And as Elon Musk recently said, Elon Musk being the honorable exception to the rule that billionaires think that there are too many other people around them. Elon Musk said, you know, basically that uh, Japan is is gone. And it's true. If the Japanese don't start having babies with their population dropping basically by half each generation uh, in a century Actually, the uh, Japanese Ministry of Health a few years ago did the calculations, and they said at the current birth rate, with women averaging only about 1.2 children, there will only be 500 Japanese left in the year 2300. Now, I won't be around in the year 2300. <laughs> I won't be around in the year 2100. But So who knows how many Japanese there are going to be in the year 2300. But it is a mathematical certainty that if the current population of Japan averages only 1.2 children, that the population will be in dramatic secular decline. And uh, it's hard to see how you can turn that around because the population in Japan and South Korea and most European countries and Russia and China, Hong Kong, Singapore, the list of countries goes on and on. The population is declining now so rapidly and is so elderly that, Uh, it's hard to see how you can turn this around. I mean, I did the calculations. And in China, for example, there are so few young women that every young woman would have to marry by 21 and have three children by the time she's 30 in order to stop the population from declining. Now, I don't see any combination of bribes or incentives that the Communist Party could offer to make that happen. That's not to say they couldn't use coercion. Obviously, they used coercion in the past, right? If you arrest a young woman who's 21 years old and pregnant with her second child, seven months, eight months pregnant, and forcibly abort her and then sterilize her so she'll never have any more children, why wouldn't you tell 20-year-old women that they must get married and they must be pregnant within the next two years or they will be artificially inseminated? I mean, it sounds outrageous to put it that way. But it's nothing more than what they did in the other direction to force down the birth rate. I think we're going to see coercion. I think we're going to see the handmaid's tale come to life in China in the years to come with uh, not forced abortion now, but forced pregnancy.
2: Yes, I think you're right. It's a grave thing to think about, but the evidence is there that they've done it one direction. They can easily take it in another. Victor, I want to talk to you about the map that's been developed under your leadership explain what the map is and what it does
1: yeah well it's similar to the data that steven's referencing where around the world we see very alarming trends where especially north america europe russia you know as mentioned japan We see that countries are significantly below replacement rate. And as Stephen eloquently laid out there, that's a huge problem. And so what we've done is we've gathered that information from all of the countries around the world and we've color coded it. We've put it into a map so you can very clearly see just at a glance what regions of the world are doing well in this sense at replacement rate, what regions of the world are really not doing well, which is North America, much of Europe, so on. Uh, And you can see, what are these countries doing? You know, we've talked about some of the incentives, the bribes. I like the word bribe there that these countries are doing to try and raise their fertility rates, raise their overall population. And it's crazy the lengths that these countries are attempting to go to to try and boost their population at the same time As we have these people who are telling us we're facing an existential crisis of overpopulation, the data tells a very different story. So we've compiled this information in a very easily digestible format and put that on our website.
2: So basically when you click on Russia, what will the the viewer see?
1: Well, each individual country, whenever you click on it, you'll see their overall growth rate. You'll see their fertility rate, which is just how many children they're having. And then you'll also see, where applicable, what the country is doing to try and raise those numbers. Some countries are doing very well. You'll see this as a common theme throughout the continent of Africa. Not many of those countries are having to bribe their people. They don't have an issue with this because their numbers are just organically very good. Other countries, like all throughout Europe, you see financial incentives. You see countries that are trying to give maybe a baby bonus. They'll give some sort of a family tax credit to the tunes of thousands of dollars if you have these children. And so when you click on a country, you'll see what they're doing. And in some cases, it's pretty interesting, their attempts.
2: Tell us a little bit more about what Russia is doing. I think that's a real (laughs) novel approach.
1: Yeah, Russia is one of them that's sort of, it makes you chuckle a little bit, but it also drives home the severity of the situation. They've actually brought back, uh, this was from the Soviet era, they've brought back an honorary title that they call Mother Heroine. This is given to women who have 10 children if they give birth to and then raise. 10 children, they get this honorary title, as well as a million Russian rubles, which is plus or minus about 16,000 US dollars. So you talk about a serious incentive. They're also doing a program, this is a a very interesting one, Uh, September 12th, they call it their day of conception or procreation day. It's a national holiday where everyone is encouraged to stay home And procreate they want you to make babies and then it's it's almost like a competition exactly nine months later june 12th if you have a baby the closest to that date you receive an award i I mean these are steps that we might kind of laugh at but again it shows the severity of the situation When the Russian government is bringing back honorary titles from the Soviet era, when they're having competitions, essentially, and national holidays to try and incentivize procreation, it tells you a lot about what's going on.
2: Yes. So if you procreate and the timing is advantageous, uh, the top prize winner gets an SUV. I mean, (laughs) Victor, which countries have the highest uh, fertility rates?
1: The countries with the highest fertility rates are Niger, Somalia, the Democratic Republic of Congo, Mali, and Chad.
2: And what do they have in common?
1: Well, it's interesting because during the research for the map, I wanted to you know see if I could find any common denominators. And what you'll see amongst those five countries is they all have very strong protections for both mother and child. They have a pretty good understanding of the sanctity of life, and it's reflected in their legislation.
2: Well, in Uruguay is really a good case study for us, isn't it?
1: Well, it's interesting. So similar to in Africa, where generally speaking, the countries are doing well, they're at replacement rate, if not considerably above replacement rate in South and Central America, you see a similar theme where they're doing relatively well but there's an outlier. There's Uruguay, which seemingly is uncharacteristically low in their fertility rates, at least regionally. And so I started doing a little bit of research into this country and trying to figure out what makes them different than the nations around them. Well, one of the possible explanations is that in 2012, they legalized abortion. Just one of a handful of countries in the area to do so And just a few short years later, their population decline accelerated dramatically to a point where, you know, they, like many other countries around the world, find themselves in a pretty dire situation where they have to raise it because their fertility rates are at an extremely low level. And so I was curious, you know, is there a relationship between legalizing abortion and their uncharacteristically low fertility rates? And all of this, again, is represented on our map. But what I noticed is that there's research published in PubMed, for example, that talks about how the decrease in their youth fertility rate You know, they say, well, there's a direct relationship between legalizing abortion and a decrease in youth fertility. Then there's research published in The Rio Times that says in their conclusion, half of the sharp decline in fertility was, get this, due to a decline in adolescent fertility. They're measuring between 15 and 24 year old women. They see this starch decline. And so one of the things I thought was particularly interesting was these researchers that were published in Rio Times, they bring up the conversation of abortion. Abortion. In fact, they say, well, it may have played a role. However, they kind of clarify and give themselves a way out here. They say the data doesn't show a significant increase in the number of abortions. Well, that's not true. According to MSYU reports, which show a 143% increase in legal abortions from 2013 to 2020. I'm not saying that that is the sole reason that we see this uncharacteristic low fertility rate in Uruguay. But I can promise one thing without a shadow of a doubt. When you want to have more babies, it's not a good idea to kill babies.
2: Any thoughts, additional thoughts here, Steve, on Uruguay?
0: Well, on Uruguay and Latin America in general, you know, has been a big target of U.S. population control programs from the beginning because uh, the idea back in the 1960s and even continuing today is that fewer uh, immigrants, and of course, the, the, current, uh, the current situation is reversed because apparently one political party wants as many immigrants as they can possibly get across the border from all around the world. But the original idea of the population controllers is that if you're worried about illegal immigration, which both parties used to be worried about 20 years ago. You need to legalize abortion in countries south of the border, encourage sterilization. We were, the United States, for example, was going in the 1960s, was going through the U.S. Embassy in Mexico City, telling the Mexican government that it needed to put in place a sterilization program. It needed to make sure that all women who were having children were told that they should now have an IUD implanted so they wouldn't have another child right away. And we actually funded that program for decades and decades on end, which is one of the reasons why the average Mexican woman in 1960 had six children, and the average Mexican woman today has less than uh, 2.1, less than replacement. Uh, so Mexico is, has below replacement fertility. And that, again, was intended when the population control programs were set up to stop immigration by killing potential immigrants in the cradle.
2: Well, Victor, getting back to the map, I see this as an exciting tool that's available to the pro-life movement, to media, and to other people interested in getting to the truth about world population. Is there anything else that you wanted to point out about this map and what it revealed?
1: Well, the map just overall, it reveals regionally areas that are doing well and common themes about those regions. And something I thought was particularly interesting is when you compare our map to a map of international abortion laws, you'll see a nearly perfect inverse relationship, meaning, and this is, uh, you know, not something that we can definitively claim to be a causal relationship, but it's very interesting at the least. The regions of the world that have decided that they do not want to protect their unborn just so happen to be the same regions of the world where they are below replacement rate. The regions of the world that are not suffering with below replacement rate fertility, they protect, generally speaking, they're unborn. And again, there's gonna be some outliers, there's gonna be some that stand alone here, but when you have regions of the world that are forced to pay women to have children to give away SUVs you know even kim jong un in north korea is now telling women it's their duty he's imposing this that they have to go and and have these children it's just very telling to me when you compare the international abortion laws to the international fertility rate and you see the obvious to me relationship between the two I think that was potentially the most eye-opening of all of it while we have the Western world scrambling to try and figure out how to have more babies and for example the continent of Africa, these governments aren't doing hardly anything to incentivize you know raising their fertility rates they don't have to they're protecting their babies. It's a pretty interesting step you might think and having more kids is not aborting in the case of the United States over 60 million of them. We would have a lot more children if we would just stop aborting them.
2: So I want to ask this question to both of you. What is the roadmap moving forward to increase our population to a healthy level? And is it important? Is it going to impact all of us if we don't get this under control?
0: I mean, Social Security in the United States is slated to go bankrupt in uh, the year 2033, which uh, may affect, uh, won't affect Victor right away. But uh, but Brad, you and I might uh, be impacted by that in, in years to come. So what we need to do in the United States is this. We need to realize that half measures do not solve the problem. We need to tell young couples that if they're willing to marry and have children, that they will be sheltered from all taxes. They will be sheltered from income tax. They will be sheltered from social security. And it won't happen upon marriage. It'll happen in stages. If you get married and have one child, then a third of your taxes are deductible and a third of your social security payments are deductible. With two children, two thirds, with three children or more, you should pay no income tax and no social security tax. And the reason is that you're investing in the future of America in the most fundamental way by investing in the future generation. You are paying a couple hundred thousand dollars to raise another productive American citizen who, over the course of his or her lifetime, will contribute perhaps a million dollars more in production than they will consume. The other thing we should do is this. We have put in place the best contraceptive ever invented is student loans. By saddling <laughs> millions and millions of young people in the United States with student loans, we have virtually forced them to defer marriage and Childbearing because they don't feel financially able to get married and have children. We should do the same thing with student loans. I'm not in favor of blanket forgiveness, but for couples who are willing to marry and commit to having children, they should have their student loan repayments deferred for 10 years. And then upon the birth of the first child or the adoption of the first child, have one third of it forgiven. With two children, have two thirds forgiven. With three children or more, have it all forgiven. That will do more to increase the birth rate uh, than anything else. These little half measures, the little will help you buy an SUV, (laughs) will give you a a check for $100 a month if you have another child. Uh, Those won't help except on the margins. We've got to go into this in a big way in order to stave off population decline. And look, the picture painted simply in economic terms by declining population is horrific to contemplate. You have hospital maternity wards shutting down, you have factories closing. You have elderly, uh, have short timelines. They're not going to invest to start new companies, start new businesses. They're going to be drawing down their savings. It is a recipe for a slow rolling economic collapse, as we see in China today and other countries.
1: I was going to say, I, I couldn't agree more. It's going to take some sort of real measures. That's one thing we see throughout Europe is a lot of half steps. You see a lot of countries that are trying the gimmicks. They're trying, here's $500 a month or an SUV or you know, some sort of a prize if you have a child at the right time. But the reality is we have to create a culture of life. You know We have to value the sanctity of human life. It's very easy to not want to have children When, for example, the nuclear family has been completely devalued, when the idea of having children, which used to be essential in the United States, that was part of the American dream. You'd get married. You'd have a couple of kids. You'd have your white picket fence. They've destroyed that. Effectively, they've tried to at the least. And we need to bring that back. We need to bring back. A little bit of respect for mothers. We need to bring back some respect for fathers. We need to bring back that nuclear family because without that, we're gonna have a lot of issues. And so, Stephen, I I totally agree. We have to take big steps and they have to be focused on the sanctity of life and returning that. Because if we don't have sanctity of life, why would anyone want to have children? They view them as a burden. They've heard so much propaganda from the people who say that we have to get rid of, you know, humans or the virus and we're the existential threat to the planet. They've really made it to where everyone's discouraged. Young people, I can say this as a young person, they've written off the idea. They view it as some sort of a financial burden or even a burden on the environment, a burden on on the earth itself. And that's just so backwards. It's devaluing human life in a way that unless we correct that, I don't see how we ever raise our fertility rate.
2: Well, I want to thank you both for enlightening us on an issue that many people are totally unaware of. They've bought into this idea that the world is overpopulated and we must do everything we can. Victor, as you said, the environment is a key piece of their propaganda, uh, scaring people into not having children to save the earth. So thank you both for your contributions and um, it's been a delightful time talking to you about them.
0: Thank you, Brod.
1: Well, Brad, this has been a very important conversation, I believe. Obviously, it's kind of near and dear to my heart, the the research that has been put into this. But I just I really hope and pray that everyone makes use of this resource, because as you mentioned at the beginning there, there's really nothing quite like this out there. And it's a powerful tool for people to be able to see this. It so clearly combats the narrative that there's some existential crisis as we have people that are desperately trying to convince young people not to have children The reality is, in the Western world, we're in pretty dire straits. We need to have more children.
2: You're spot on. And I want to add this also, that we matched you up with the world's leading expert on population, and you held your own quite well. I'm really (laughs) excited about the map and the opportunities we're going to provide to others around the globe, revealing the truth about overpopulation.
1: That's right. And I wanna encourage all of our listeners to go to lifeissues.org, where of course you'll find the map that we've referenced today, as well as other resources to help you effectively defend life and create a culture of life across America. While you're there, I want to encourage you to join the Life Defenders today. Be an essential part of our daily work to save babies and promote a culture of life across America. Giving monthly in any amount is a tremendous commitment to the pro-life movement. Though we can't all be researchers, sidewalk counselors, or etc., we can all support vital pro-life education through monthly donations. It allows us to reach persuadable people with a powerful pro-life message, and it enabled the creation of this very program. Help us do more for the babies by becoming a life defender today. Again, you can easily sign up on our website, lifeissues.org. Be sure to tune in next week for more straight talk on life issues.